Hi listeners, it's Masha Mokutonina, a producer on Masters of Scale. I spend a large part of my day carefully crafting emails, composing documents and endlessly responding to messages. Which is why I am such a big fan of Grammarly, the secure AI writing partner I use on a daily basis. Whether it's reaching out to high-profile guests or coordinating logistics with the production team, I use Grammarly to adjust my writing to different audiences while maintaining the brand voice of Masters of Scale. Grammarly helps spot redundancies and clean up sentences that are unnecessarily wordy, verbose, long-winded and repetitive. Like this one. Grammarly's AI prompts help guide my writing process, personalizing content based on context as well as making tone adjustments intuitively. It doesn't just help me generate more content, it helps me generate better content. Amazingly, Grammarly works seamlessly across my email, Slack, and over 500,000 apps and websites, so there is no cutting, pasting, or context switching needed. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster and hit their goals while keeping their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. When technologies become ubiquitous and essential, they also generate opposition. Take PowerPoint, a product I use almost every day. There's a whole cottage industry of PowerPoint haters online. They publish essays with headlines like, PowerPoint makes us stupid, or PowerPoint is evil. They dabble in politics, like Switzerland's anti-PowerPoint party. Google it if you don't believe me. You'll find on their website a rousing slogan, Finally, do something. And if any party stalwarts are out there listening, I have news for you. Sheryl Sandberg, the chief operating officer of Facebook, finally did something. I don't love PowerPoint presentations and meetings for me because I want them to be more discussions. So I kept saying, please don't bring PowerPoint, please don't bring PowerPoint at Facebook for years, but everyone kept bringing PowerPoint. So one day, probably more frustrated than I needed to be, I just said, no more PowerPoint, any of my meetings. There was just one problem. Cheryl's words carry a lot of weight at Facebook, sometimes more weight than she'd like. Before long, she found herself squaring off against the PowerPoint enthusiasts. They're not as vocal. You might call them the silent majority. So then a few months later, I was getting ready to get on stage at the Global Sales Conference, so all of our global people from around the world. And I looked at someone who was standing there, uh, my friend Kirsten, who was in HR at the time, and I said, well, what are the things do you think they're going to ask me about? And she said, well, everyone wants to talk about the PowerPoint thing. I said, what PowerPoint thing? She said, you know, the no PowerPoint thing. It's very hard to do client meetings without PowerPoint. And I said, what no PowerPoint thing for clients? And I realized that my instruction, no PowerPoint, got translated through this large organization as Cheryl says no PowerPoint in client meetings. So I got on the stage and I said, one, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. Two, it is on me that if you all thought that and that was a stupid idea, you need to speak up and tell me. Of course you can have PowerPoint with clients. Clients love PowerPoints. I don't. And it was just a really good lesson that I needed to be super careful that things didn't get taken too far, but also that I needed to make sure people could speak up. There are great uses of PowerPoint, and there are bad uses of PowerPoint. I'd rather focus your attention on how Cheryl handled it. She doesn't just want to be heard. She wants to be challenged. She's not afraid to be wrong, and she's not afraid to change course. And that's what makes her a great leader at scale. Great leaders of fast-moving organizations don't just make plans, they break them. You've got to have incredible talent at every position. It's like this 
huge push. There are fires burning when you're going home. Can you believe it? Such an idiot. And then you go back to, this is totally going to be amazing. There are so many easy ways. So, 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 I have no idea what to do. Sorry, we made a mistake. But you have to time it right. Oops. Working at a three-bedroom apartment. Stuff that just seems absolutely nutballs. Ten years later, we're like, well, that's just how you do it. We haven't made just how you do it. This is Masters of Scale. We'll start the show in a moment, after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I wrote down on a piece of paper, what are the strengths that we have and what are the clear glaring opportunities that we're missing? That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business. Like many leaders, she spent her first months in her new position asking those big picture questions. Aparna had always been a data junkie, so that's where her interest went. The key thing on opportunities that kept glaring at me was in a world where marketing has moved so much closer to using big data and leveraging machine learning, we were far away from there. How do we scale our marketing engine from where it is today? She came up with a plan to refocus and called a town hall, but the response was not what she expected. We'll find out why later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight, focus on your team and your customers. I'm Reed Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn and partner at Greylock. On this episode of Masters of Scale, I'm going to test one of my theories on leadership, the kind of leadership you need in an organization that's changing fast. So fast that the office you leave at night is different from the one you walk into the next morning. I believe to lead an organization to scale, you have to be as skilled at breaking plans as you are at making them. Every day, there are new competitors, new threats, new opportunities. There's no simple, straightforward set of marching orders. It's more like a dogfight. You and your team will be flying upside down and at an angle sometimes, Now, Cheryl is one of those gifted leaders who's made daring decisions at every level of scale. She can run a team of four, 400, or 40,000. I wanted to talk to her about leading a company as it scales because she is literally the archetype for this kind of leader. You'll frequently hear investors like me say to founders, we need to find you, your Cheryl Sandberg. It's funny because if you had found Cheryl Sandberg at the beginning of her career, she probably would have turned you down. You know, the main thing I was raised with is don't go into business and good to be a doctor. My father's a doctor. I have two siblings. They're both doctors. One of them married a doctor. Being a doctor was good. It was giving back. Working in nonprofits or the government was considered very good. Business was a little suspect. I started my career working at the World Bank. I worked on leprosy in India, AIDS in India, blindness in India. But if you had asked me the day I graduated college if I would ever work in the private sector, I would have thought you were insulting me. So Cheryl started out in the public sector. She spent seven years at the U.S. Treasury Department as chief of staff to Secretary Larry Summers. And in that position, she rubbed shoulders with the aristocracy of American business, CEOs from every industry. In the late 1990s, she started to notice a certain type of executive who challenged all of her preconceptions. You know, people came into Treasury all the time and most people wore suits but not Eric Schmidt. Eric Schmidt was CEO of Google from 2001 to 2011. He's now executive chairman of Alphabet, Google's parent company. 
No, he, he, he looked, he felt different. Jerry Yang would come in. Jerry Yang was the founder of Yahoo. Those were the Yahoo days. They, they looked, they felt different. And it really felt like they had this energy and passion around changing the world. And I remember this one day, I was with Larry Summers, and we had a lunch in New York. And it was, you know, all the bankers, and everyone was wearing suits, and it was very formal. And then we flew across the country, and Eric Schmidt picked us up in his car, wearing jeans, and took us to a local pizza place with Jerry Yang. And we sat there, and they were talking and eating, everyone's eating off each other's plates. And the, the stark contrast between those two meals, the formality and the what felt very traditional about the world I was living in, and the informality and the big ideas that were discussed at that dinner of what seemed like the new world convinced me that for-profit companies actually were mission-based. And that's how I got to Google. Cheryl took the job at Google in 2001 and moved to Silicon Valley. Her title was Business Unit General Manager, which sounds important. Incidentally, Google didn't have any business units to manage. I remember my first week, Eric was busy. And they were working on a big reorg for the engineering department. At the end of the week, I figured out what the reorg was. The reorg was every single engineer would report directly to Wayne Rosing, who was the VP of engineering. So there were about 200 engineers. That was the reorg. They were going to all report directly to him. It was a crazy thing. Saying 200-ish people should support directly to one person was saying, we don't want management. And that was exactly what they were saying. And so it was unorthodox and cool. And had the property that we really trusted our employees to do the right thing. I learned it was different from the Treasury Department right away. Right away. (laughs) Probably minute three. Minute three. It's fundamentally not a good idea to have 200 engineers report to one manager. Among other things, you want your engineers to feel like someone's paying attention to them. I'm sure Cheryl could name all of the reasons not to do this. But to her credit, she doesn't. She adjusts to this strangely amorphous team by her third minute on the job. And that's the reaction time she'll need. Because Cheryl's about to learn what every leader of a fast-growing startup knows. Every plan is made to be broken. My team was four people, and they were very worried we were going to grow. So my first day, I said, don't worry. We're all going to interview everyone. Well, two weeks later, the team was 12 people. And it was completely unreasonable to have a person interview with 12 people. Plus, we only had 12 people to do any work. So if everyone interviewed everyone, that didn't work at all. So this promise I had made to make them feel good about scaling, I took away in a week. The path to scale always, unfortunately, includes some broken promises, as Cheryl would soon find out. Everything from interviews to office space changes as you grow, and even a small take-back can matter to a team. I'll give you another silly example that I don't think is silly, birthdays. We celebrated everyone's birthday that day. Then it became that week. Eventually, we had a huge sheet cake with quarterly birthdays. My team was 4,000 when I left, and everyone's name's on it. Now, it sounds like that wouldn't matter, but it did. Because if you started out and we celebrated everyone's birthday and we took that away, that was a problem. Now, I'm not saying be mean and don't celebrate birthdays. I'm saying figure out what your systems are going to look like later and do it now. I want to note a crucial distinction here. When it came to hiring new employees, Cheryl failed to anticipate how quickly her plan would unravel. But in the case of birthday parties, she did. And she worked out a solution. Sheet cakes. That's the key to leading through scale. You can't stop the onslaught of challenges, but you can identify the moment where they force you to pivot and start buying bigger cakes. As the team doubles and triples in size, a skilled manager keeps a vigilant watch for systems that are failing. But the best managers, 
They don't spot the changes on their own. Their team surfaces problems for them. The trick is getting them to speak up. When our team was growing, I interviewed everyone who joined globally. And when we were about at 100 people, I noticed that the cue for my interview was out of kind of holding up our hiring process. So I said in a meeting with my direct reports, you know, I think maybe I should stop interviewing, fully expecting that they would jump right in and say, absolutely not. You're a great interviewer. We need your personal recommendation on anyone on your team. Do you know what they did? They applauded. And I thought to myself, I've become a bottleneck. And you didn't tell me, and that's on me. Notice what Cheryl focuses on here. She isn't bothered by the team applauding her decision to step aside. She's disturbed by the fact that no one told her the truth. She knows she needs everyone's honest input to make the frequent, fast decisions Google's business demands. And that kind of openness doesn't happen on its own. Leaders have to embrace truth-telling, especially when they learn that they are the problem. I thought my interview was that important. No one else did. I was their boss. I was their manager. If they didn't tell me, that was on me. And I realized I have to make it safe for y'all to speak up when I'm messing up. One thing you should know about Cheryl is that she basically built Google's engine for growth. Her team powered AdWords. They ran the business that displays ads next to search results. It may not sound like a thrilling breakthrough. In fact, it became the lifeblood, the capital, that funds nearly all of Google's innovations. In essence, Cheryl and her team were building the infrastructure for global online advertising. The pressure to scale was immense. As her team swelled from dozens to hundreds, she learned to lead in a fast-changing environment. One essential skill, as we've seen, is to spot unsustainable systems. But there's a second skill that Cheryl would learn, how to hire people for roles that never existed before. She learned about this when she interviewed for a role like that. When I was interviewing for jobs, I had a really nice experience with Meg Whitman. I was interviewing at eBay. Meg Whitman is CEO of Hewlett-Packard and the former CEO of eBay. When I got to see her, I just said, I don't have any relevant experience. And she said, no one has any experience because no one's ever done this before. I really took that lesson to heart. I did not go look for people with online ad sales experience. And that's a good thing because there was no one with online ad sales experience. So Cheryl had to hire people for roles at Google that had never existed anywhere before. She also had to hire them without knowing what she'd need in just a few weeks or months. Changing organizations have changing needs. It can be hard to predict just how long you'll need a given skill set. And that's one of the hardest challenges of managing through scale. I asked Bill Gates, who you might have heard of, how he wishes he had handled hiring in the early days. He shared some wistful advice. If you were to call your younger self and tell yourself like, okay, here are some principles by which you should hire differently, what would that phone call to your younger self be? Well, I, when I was young, I, I always hired thinking our organization would grow a lot, but the notion that these intelligences were as specialized as they are, I was so wrong. I, I thought, partly uh, because of myself or misperceptions of myself, that, hey, I can learn sales. What, what is that? You know? Profit and loss, you take, you know, the sales, you subtract the costs, you know, do you need to go to business school? I don't think so. I didn't have enough respect for different deep knowledge. I didn't have enough respect for good management, what really good management is. Bright young founders, listen carefully. You have to start swapping out what I call generalists, those jacks of all trades, with specialists, experienced executives who know how to lead massive teams. I've seen companies swap upwards of a third of their managers in 18 months. Let me tell you, 
Those are not easy conversations to have with the people who fought alongside you in the trenches. It's one thing to make and break company plans. It's another thing to make and break commitments to human beings. It takes practice diplomacy to navigate those decisions. My friend, Selena Tabakwala, has that kind of diplomacy. She's a serial entrepreneur who co-founded evite.com, an early online invitation service, and is now co-founder of a startup called Gixo. I asked her how she thinks about hiring people who can scale with the company. I think that one of the biggest learnings I had is how much are you hiring the right person for that time? And then how much are you hiring the person who's going to be the right person in 18 months or 24 months as you're growing? And I'm not sure I always made those right decisions, but those were decisions you had to keep revisiting because you had somebody who was crushing it at that moment. And then two years, three years down the road, they're like a manager of managers is super unhappy or isn't capable. But then at the same time, there were certain situations where we sort of hired somebody who couldn't get their hands dirty. And then it was a very frustrating 18 or 24 months if they made it that long. So I think there's this question of which I feel like I don't necessarily have the answer to, (laughs) but is balancing hiring the people who can get the job done now versus hiring the people who will also be successful later. This balancing act between who you need now and who you'll need later is no small feat. In the early startup stage, you need all-rounders who love to get their hands dirty. Later on, you need polished managers who know how to delegate. Not everyone makes it through every company turn, and not everyone is destined to be a manager. Some people are best as individual contributors, as an engineer, not as a VP of engineering. The key to keeping a happy team as you scale is to give your employees a frame to understand what's going on. You need to give each employee multiple ways to tell their own story of herodom. So they can say to themselves, I'm a major contributor. I matter here. I may not be an executive, but I'm making progress in my career. Because the reflexive story that people tell themselves is, well, I'm the first product manager, so I'm gonna be the head of product from the time we're five people in a garage until we become a 10,000 person company. And that's actually pretty unlikely. Cheryl's team at Google was about to grow from four to 4,000. She had to hire for uncertainty, being ready to make and break plans, and she had to hire fast. We needed to hire really quickly. So we started that temp to hire program. We just hired people as temps. And then we would evaluate them over the course of the first month, two months, and then we would convert the most successful of them to full-time. It was a great way to scale in those very early days when we needed a lot of work done very quickly. It also got us to hire people we probably would have otherwise not hired. People who didn't necessarily interview well, people who didn't necessarily have the right the background that Google was always looking for, but they came in and did great work. Hiring temps is a great hack when you need to hire quickly, but not every company can rely on hiring temps. And there's also a tension in every growing company between hiring fast and hiring well. Founders have different philosophies on which to emphasize and when. My friend Mike Cassidy has some rules around this, which I asked him to share. He's now launching his fifth technology startup, Apollo Fusion. I want to tell you the secret sauce of his new company, but I can't. He's in stealth mode. And he's hiring quickly, but not hastily. There's a limit, he says, to how fast you should go. I mean, if you count the hours in the day that you're looking at resumes and doing interviews uh, and then onboarding people, I mean, it's hard. If you've got six people in the company, you could probably only hire another six people in three months and then another 12 people three months after that. That really is challenging. And what are some of your rules in the early hiring? 
I think one of them is a bad hire in the first 15 is fatal to the company. So really watch out for those bad eggs. I mean, I have a a whole set of interview questions and techniques that I really big believer in, you know, trying to determine if someone is a team player versus uh, I got my stuff done. The other person's got to get their stuff done. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. At my town hall with my team, I was able to sort of declare this new vision for us to become this modern marketing engine. I had a lot of skeptics who were like, we've seen this, done this, it's not going to work. We're back with the Parnasaran of Capital One Business. She's recalling a town hall where she put forth her data-driven vision for overhauling her team's marketing strategy. Moving from output-focused marketing to outcome-focused marketing. When you are outcome-focused, you're actually using the data to evaluate whether your strategies are effective or not, versus output focus is how many campaigns did I run and how many emails did I send, and so on and so forth. But not everyone was on board. Aparna realized that her presentation was premature. You're not ready to actually declare the vision because people didn't buy into your strategy. First of all, you just have to get comfortable with the fact that people have a right to their own point of view. Second is understanding that there is a story behind the skepticism. And until and unless I understand that story, I will not be able to turn things around. So Aparna turned to her team for answers, something she neglected to factor into her initial plan. She listened and learned. Pay extra attention to what they are saying. And ask a lot of questions. I hear where you're coming from. Any ideas on how we could do this differently? They will rightly slow you down, and you'll be grateful that they slowed you down. And it's a good thing they did, because a very important piece was missing from Aparna's new marketing strategy. We'll find out what that was later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. Mike Cassidy isn't the only founder who puts a premium on each early hire. Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, tells me he believes in setting the highest possible standard for each role. So the single most important thing is to get the best people you can around you. And when I look at my friends who are running other good companies, the single biggest difference that I see in whether the companies end up becoming really great and reaching their potential or just pretty good is whether they're comfortable and really self-confident enough to have people who are stronger than them around them. And I've adopted this hiring rule, which is that you should never hire someone to work for you unless you would work for them in an alternate universe, which doesn't mean that you should give them your job, but just if, if the tables were turned and you were looking for a job, would you be comfortable working for this person? And I, I basically think that if the answer to that is no, then you're doing something expedient by hiring them, but you're not doing as well as you can on that. You know, there are all these things that Cheryl, for example, is just much stronger than me at, and and that makes me better and makes Facebook better. I am not afraid or threatened by that. I value that. And that's what makes Facebook good. So there are times to hire fast and there are times to hire slow. And in 2008, Mark began a very slow professional courtship of Sheryl Sandberg. By this time, Sheryl had scaled Google's online sales team to more than 4,000 employees. Collectively, they brought in two-thirds of Google's revenue. This fact wasn't lost on Mark when he first met Sheryl at a friend's Christmas party. And Mark also made a fast impression. I met Mark and I was just inspired. 
I had been using Facebook. I saw its potential to make us who we were. Putting yourself and your picture and your real friends and your real connection and your real birthday online was such a big leap. But it was one that really resonated for me because it enabled us to have personal connections. And so I believed in the mission. And then I just really believed in Mark. He had energy and passion and big vision. He said, everything's going to be social. Sounds obvious now. Nothing was social then. But how do you bring in a senior executive of Cheryl's caliber? Patiently. Mark knew he couldn't reverse the engine on this hire. He had to get it right the first time. To say I had multiple conversations with Mark is kind of the understatement. He was a late night guy. He didn't come into the office particularly early. So he would come over for dinner at like 8. And I would literally have to kick him out at like 11 or 12. And we had dinners once or twice a week for months I think way earlier than he decided he wanted to work with me, I decided I wanted to work with him. And that was the only way I was going to have, you know, six hours a week time I didn't have of endless conversation. But I think he was right because by the time we worked together, we had really talked about kind of who we were, what we believed in, what we thought the potential was of Facebook to scale, how we would scale. We also got the world's best advice from my husband, Dave. Mark and I didn't agree on a lot of substantive things at that point. And Dave told me, he's like, don't work any of those out. You never will. He said, what you want from Mark is process agreement on how you will work things out. Because even if you work all the questions you have out now, they're going to change. I'd like to take a moment to reflect on Cheryl's awesome husband, David Goldberg, whose death in May 2015 came as such a shock to everyone who knew him. He was the CEO of SurveyMonkey and a generous mentor. This piece of advice is just one of the ways that he lives on. So we agreed we would sit together. We agreed we would always do the first meeting of the week on Monday and the last meeting of the week on Friday. I asked him for feedback. He made it mutual. We would always give each other feedback every week. And it will be nine years next month. Notice how Cheryl and Mark take disagreements as a constant feature of their working relationship. If Mark and Cheryl had made promises to each other around specific solutions to specific challenges facing Facebook at the time, they would have inevitably broken those commitments. By promising they would always be frank and work through disagreements, that was a promise that they have kept. It's a promise that sustains their relationship to this day and underpins their company culture. You have to be intentional if you're going to encourage debate. And there's no one better to talk about this dynamic than Margaret Heffernan, former CEO of five companies. She gave a TED Talk called Dare to Disagree, and she offers a simple advice to leaders. Show, don't tell. I think constructive conflict is essential. It's how organizations think. You know, one of the huge problems of running any kind of organization is how can you create an environment where people feel it's really safe to do that? Uh, where they're allowed to do it, and where people have, if you like, the robustness or maturity not to take it or make it personal. Cheryl, too, believes this focus on respectful disagreement and fast feedback is what makes Facebook resilient as a company. So we all need resilience. We need resilience as individuals. And the way you build a resilient organization is you learn from failure. You don't hide it. You embrace it. So what does that mean? You have to get real feedback for yourself, for each other. You have to be open to feedback. You have to ask for feedback. You have to build in a culture where when I think you need to do something better or you think I need to do something better, we tell each other and tell each other directly and work it out. 
You have to embrace organizational failure. You have to sit down and debrief when things go wrong. Why did they go wrong? What can we learn and what can we do better? It's organizations that hide things under the rug that don't create the resilience because they don't learn. This willingness to acknowledge failure and embrace disagreement is a critical advantage in a fast-moving industry because it allows you to see mistakes earlier so you can know what to tear down and what to build up. Thoughtful scale leaders thrive on disagreement because it gives them the information they need to test their ideas before they make and break plans. Indeed, they seek out colleagues who won't share their point of view. You know, and the lesson everyone talks about, but I really mean is you really do want to hire people who are better than you are and who are different than you are. This is where we talk about diversity, right? I don't just mean racial, national, age, gender. All of that diversity is super important. I mean, in addition to that, cognitive diversity, which you get from all those backgrounds, but also just personality diversity. You know, if you are a white male who likes to code and sci-fi movies, probably don't want your whole team to be that. I think about David Fisher. David Fisher and I have worked together at Treasury, at Google, and at Facebook personality types were just very different. I'm much more up and down. I will get nervous. Something's not moving fast enough. I will be exuberant and I will be down. Not David. David is absolutely calm. And over decades of working together, that balance has really been important because sometimes I'll look at David and say, this is an emergency. And he'll say, no, it's not, Cheryl, calm down. And sometimes I'll say, David, you're not moving fast enough. And he'll say, you're right. I think Mark and I have that too. We are very different right? We are separated by, obviously, gender. 15 years. He's my boss. He's 15 years younger. Completely different personalities, completely different working styles. And I think that served Facebook well. You can't overestimate this kind of diversity. You have to have colleagues who offer calm to your chaos or put the occasional brakes on your speed. And it's fortunate that Cheryl and Mark balance each other out because they would soon face one of the trickiest transitions in Facebook's history, an existential threat requiring a rapid change of course. We have a word for these kinds of evasive maneuvers here in Silicon Valley. We call it an OODA loop. That's a fighter pilot term. It stands for observe, orient, decide, act. The fighter pilot who has the fastest OODA loop wins. The other one dies. If you ever watch the movie Top Gun, you'll have a basic understanding of how an OODA loop works. Tom Cruise's character, Maverick, has a few bad guys on his tail. In a split second, he orients himself to the enemy's formation. Then he decides to perform a crazy aerial maneuver. He acts. And it confounds everyone. Score one for the free world. Now, I'm not suggesting that tech executives secretly want to blast each other out of the sky. What they do want is to perform slightly crazy, super fast maneuvers again and again. You'll often hear founders asking, what is the OODA loop of an organization or an individual? Because speed matters in combat and also in fast-moving industries. And in 2012, Facebook had to perform the mother of all OODA loops. Its users were migrating from desktop computers to mobile devices at a startling rate. Cheryl and Mark faced a tough decision. Our products were designed for the desktop, and we realized the mobile transition was happening. It was happening way faster than we thought, and it kept outstripping our predictions. And so Mark did this company all hands, which he still does when he wants to reset or make sure we're on the right path. And he stood up at the company all hands and said, we're going to be a mobile first company. And he did it incredibly well. But then you know what happened the next day? Nothing. People still came in with their desktop screenshots because that's what they knew how to build. And so a couple meetings in, Mark just said, you know what? No more meetings unless you're mobile screenshots first. And just by making that shift, 
he made the shift in the company and we really had to force it. And the company really got on board, but it meant retraining a lot of engineers. So a shift on this scale tends to make your board members and shareholders a bit antsy. Mark Zuckerberg shared their concerns, but the greater risk in his view was to take only a half-hearted step towards a new market. So we made one really important strategy decision which was often when companies need to take two years or so to rewrite their whole app or software for a new platform, they believe that they can't slow down feature development. So they do two things at the same time. They try to design a new product while rewriting the existing product. And I think that that ends up dragging everything out for longer and increases the chance that you fail and die. So we made what was a pretty hard decision at the time, which was basically no new features for two years, which is kind of a crazy thing. Fortunately for Mark, he retained a controlling interest in the company. He famously turned down a $75 million buyout offer in 2005, followed by a $1.5 billion offer in 2006. This afforded his team the latitude to perform some truly daring OODA loops. Mark's control enables us to have a long-term view. We were a newly public company. We disappointed a lot of people in our near-term revenue. That's because we only had so many engineers, and if we wanted to make money in the near term that quarter, we should put it on desktop ads, and we did not. We were giving up a lot of current revenue for the promise of future revenue. Mark and I sat in a room one day, and he looked at me, and he said, we're going to do this. And I looked at him, and I said, well, you really can't be fired, and you're the only person who can fire me. If you're in, I'm in. And it was a joke we had, but it's an important joke. This ability for a leadership team to joke together, to think together, to take risks together, it's what holds an organization together. It allows them to work towards the same goal and orient thousands of people in the same direction. The constant course correction and OODA loops, the making and breaking of plans, feels less disorienting in the hands of great scale leaders. And to be clear, we're not going to achieve consensus on every decision. Employees may disagree passionately about a dramatic change of plans. What matters is how you have the debate and what happens afterwards. Margaret Heffernan has a great example of this. What I think is important is that when the decision is made, everybody gets behind it. And I think the most sensational example of this I've ever come across, I spent a lot of time hanging out with and writing about Ocean Spray, the cranberry company. And they're one of the biggest cooperatives in the United States. Extraordinary business. And at one point, Pepsi tried very hard to buy them. And of course, the company is owned by the cranberry farmers. So this was a really passionate, passionate debate. You could never have resolved it by who cared most because everybody cared totally. And it ended up, the vote was 49.9% in favor of selling, 50.1% in favor of staying an independent cooperative. And what made the company what it is today, which is very successful, global, multi-billion dollar business, is that after the vote, everybody got behind it. There was no question, that's the vote, that's the outcome. Now we all work together to make it successful. And that's the truest sign of effective leadership. You invite discord, you welcome a noisy, feisty debate, but you ensure everyone understands and works towards the same goal. And this is where we reach the counterpoint. Leaders at scale have to be ready to make or break almost every plan. That's the general rule. But there's one plan you can't break, one variable that must stay constant, and that's the company's mission. It's the North Star that everyone orients around. 
For LinkedIn, it's connecting people with opportunity. For Airbnb, it's belong anywhere. For Facebook, it's connect the world. The thing about leadership is you need people to follow you enthusiastically. People will do what they're supposed to do if they work for you, but that's not what you want. You want to have an aligned mission. Rather than tell people to march four steps, you want to tell people, we're heading there, get there as quickly as you can. You have to repeat your mission and your purpose and the values you care about over and over and over. And sometimes you're like, doesn't everyone know this? It doesn't matter. Starting out your meetings with, this is the Facebook mission, this is the Instagram mission, this is why WhatsApp exists, is so powerful. Even if everyone knows it by heart because it reminds you where you're headed and why you're going there. The repetition of mission is extremely important, and I've seen it in all good scale leaders. It's actually one of the things that I've had to learn myself, because I had a tendency to think, hey, everyone knows our mission, we're all smart, let's move on. And I used to be somewhat skeptical of putting your mission statement or values on posters on the wall. It seemed controlling and vaguely Orwellian, like fascist marketing. But I had it backwards. Those posters? You find them also in the most freewheeling companies the companies that grant the greatest measure of autonomy to their employees. Now, whenever I see mission statements plastered on every wall stating, here's our goal, or here's where we're going, I recognize that there can be an unwritten footnote. Get there however you'd like. I'm Reid Hoffman. Thank you for listening. And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. What was very clear was that the customer was missing. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She had learned that she couldn't refocus her department's strategy without bringing her team along. And that meant listening when they told her what was missing, the customer. Aparna realized that putting the customer front and center would actually unify her team. I had folks who are traditional marketers and customer is the top thing on their mind. And then I have analysts who spend their time on data. And it's very easy to get stuck into that domain. I have a real opportunity to get both sides to see each other's perspective and meet in the middle. Because Aparna's team couldn't pivot without bringing the customers along. We call ourselves Team Magnet. Our job is to attract and retain customers. So it just creates a sense of working together. Aparna's revised vision statement calls Team Magnet a customer-centric, data-powered machine. The vision statement that I have right now is a hundred times better version of what I had at the beginning of the year. And it has evolved and improved as a result of these conversations we've continued to have within the walls of our team. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. Masters of Scale is a Wait What original. The show is recorded on-site in California and produced at the studio inside SY Partners in New York. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our producers are Chris McLeod, Jenny Cataldo, Dan Kedmi, and Ben Manila. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Original music is by the Holiday Brothers. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Jessica Johnston, Saida Sepieva, Elisa Schreiber, Chris Ye, David Sanford, Stephanie Kent, and Rafina Ahmad. Visit mastersofscale.com to find the transcript 
for this episode. And be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter.